All right, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel tonight. We are back in Ezekiel chapter 34. We, uh, we kind of broke, well we mentioned when we started chapter 33 that we'd probably break a couple of these chapters down into several different sermons and we did that in chapter 33 where we, I think we had three separate sermons for that chapter which normally we don't do on Wednesday nights. We normally try to take a chapter at a time uh, where it's possible but uh, it just fit uh, and was more applicable to do the separate or separate sermons for that chapter, and, and it'll probably be the same for chapter 34. We're not going to be doing the whole chapter tonight. We will be just covering the first ten verses tonight. So let's begin by reading those first ten verses. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, O shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd and because shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. There's always a, uh, a mixture of joy and excitement and heavy burden to get up and preach. Uh, it's that way every time I step into the pulpit. But there's a, an added burden when you come to passages like this, at least for a, a pastor that addresses shepherds, specifically addresses wicked shepherds and, and how the Lord will judge those shepherds. I, I pray that as we dig into this passage tonight, we learn what a shepherd should not be for sure, and we get insight into what a shepherd should be. Now, most of this chapter, chapter deals with what the shepherd should be. Uh, but the passage we are digging in tonight, these first ten verses, they primarily deal with the wicked, wicked shepherds, the bad shepherds. There will be judgment and restoration in this chapter. Uh, I did mention when we first started chapter 33 that as we, we got into the next few chapters, it was a lot of restoration uh, in these passages and in these chapters. And, and this chapter is no different. But to be restored, there has to be something to be restored, right? There has to be a problem that took place. There has to be something that needs to be restored. And as we've worked through the first chapter there, chapter 33, and then we dig into the chapter tonight, chapter 34, we are learning about things that need to be restored and how they will be restored. The leadership, as we read in these first ten verses, they are directly addressed here in, in the passage that we will have tonight. The 
title of my sermon is Wicked Shepherds. Wicked Shepherds. This is not the first time that Ezekiel has condemned or addressed the leadership in Israel, though. He did so all the way back in chapter 22. In that passage, Ezekiel really addressed each one of the divisions of leadership. We'll get into that more here in just a moment of what those, what those areas of leadership are. But in, in that passage, Ezekiel specifically referred to the, the kings, the leaders, uh, the, the civic leaders, specifically the kings, as wolves tearing at the prey. That's what he called them. Here in chapter 34, Ezekiel will use a different allegory or illustration to picture the leadership of the people of Israel. Unlike chapter 22, though, which only spoke to the wicked leaders and of the wicked leaders, this chapter moves forward past what the wicked leaders had done and what they were called, and it offers hope and restoration for the people of Israel. Their promise of restoration will come in contrast to the failure of the leaders of Israel. Ezekiel is told here in verse 1 to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, to the use of this term shepherds is a common one in Scripture. It is used often to picture leadership, right? Sometimes it pictures the religious leaders like prophets. Moses was the first example of this. Moses, of course, was the leader of Israel, much like a king would be, but he wasn't a king. There was no king that had been put on a throne by that point. And first and foremost, he was a prophet of God. That's what Moses was. Other times, this imagery pictures the, the civil leaders like the elders or the judges. You can get an example of this out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 7. And in that verse we read, "...in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I, God speaking, speak a, a, a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my sheep?" So there the shepherd referring to the judges or the civic leaders. Most often, though, it pictures the king. It, it refers to the king. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 71 read, He chose David, his servant, David obviously, the king of Israel, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. So there are a clear reference to the king David as a shepherd, and that's one of many references that uh, the prophets and God uses in Scripture to refer to the kings of Israel as shepherds. The king had a, had a special place in Israel. Not only was he meant to be a civic leader, he was also meant to be a religious leader. Not that he was supposed to teach the people of Israel God's word, like the priests or the prophets, but he was to be an example to the people as a man of God. He was supposed to set the example and require that example to be followed by not allowing idolatry and pagan worship to be a part of Israel's society. That was a primary responsibility of the king of Israel. Lamar Cooper, senior, puts it this way. He says, The king bore a primary responsibility for the moral and spiritual direction of the nation. And that's, that's very aptly put. Of course, you also have David, King David and King Solomon, who were prophets as well. They, they wrote uh, several chapters and books in the Bible, so we know that they were God's prophets along with kings, but they, they were the only two kings of Israel uh, in the Old Testament that, that wrote any, any Scripture that were prophets. But the kings, again, held a special place in Israel as both that civil and religious leader. The kings, then or who Ezekiel is, is referencing here, who he's talking about when he mentioned these shepherds here in, our, here in our chapter tonight. There were a few godly kings after David and Solomon. 
eight in fact, all of which reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah, and the last of which was King Josiah, who was reigning during the early life of Ezekiel, the prophet who wrote this book, uh, before he was taken into captivity. And, and he was, uh, King Josiah was in power when Jeremiah began his ministry, a contemporary of Ezekiel. Unfortunately, though, the long history of the northern and southern kings in Israel and Judah were short on godly kings. Beginning with King Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, a vast line of kings proved to be apostates, leading God's people directly into ruin. Jeroboam immediately introduced idolatry in the form of two golden calves placed at Dan and Bethel for the people to worship. Not one king following Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, in Israel, that northern kingdom, those ten tribes, not one king from Jeroboam on did anything other than wickedness, and follow in the path of his father before him who was also wicked and idolatrous. And they led the people of Israel deeper and deeper into idolatry. Judah fared little better though. Despite her having the benefit of several godly kings who rejected idolatry and properly, but only temporarily, led the people of Judah back to Yahweh, back to proper worship, most of Judah's kings were wicked as well. As Ezekiel warned all the way back in chapter 23, Judah's sin was actually worse than her sister in the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom Israel, because they had her example and yet still went off into idolatry. Many years before Judah was judged, and and what we have in our, our book in Ezekiel here where we've gone through that judgment, many years before that, Judah had been warned. They had seen the example of Israel, their sister in the north. They knew Israel had been warned by God through His prophets that their idolatry would be judged. Judah saw Israel judged harshly by God, by the Assyrians. They even had the threat of the Assyrian army press upon them after they invaded and took into captivity the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, after that, that Assyrian army came on down into the southern kingdom and pressed upon the Judeans there before God spared them. It's no accident that God actually spared them that that time came when a godly king was on the throne, King Hezekiah. But despite all of the clear examples of Israel and the repeated warnings by the prophets of God to Judah, Judah still wandered deeper and deeper into idolatry, all of it spearheaded by their wicked kings, their wicked shepherds. After the fall of Israel, Judah had seven more kings. Only one of them, that King Josiah I mentioned earlier, was a godly king. The rest were wicked and they were steeped in idolatry. That is precisely why Ezekiel was to prophesy against these shepherds. Ezekiel gives specific sins here which plague that monarchy and therefore cause great harm to the people of Israel. The first and overarching reason we see here these shepherds had been poor shepherds is because they had been feeding themselves instead of the sheep. Now, it's important for us to get a picture painted throughout this passage of what exactly Ezekiel is saying, this allegory he's using. Look, sheep are creatures that have to have a shepherd. There's no way around it. Without a shepherd, they stand little to no hope of survival. To put it bluntly, sheep in general are stupid. They are defenseless. According to John MacArthur, sheep have no self-defensive mechanisms. 
If they fall over on their side, they can't get up by themselves. They have to be picked up. They are hopeless and helpless. We're told by people who work with sheep in the Middle East that when sheep become afraid, and they do, they're very nervous creatures from what I understand. I've never had a sheep, so I can't say this for certain, but from what I understand, they're very nervous creatures. But when they get afraid, they lie down. And they will stay there and just die. They can't get up. They become so despondent and discouraged, they just stay and die. Sheep need a shepherd. They need a good shepherd, though. God states that the shepherds of Israel, the ones whom He had placed to care for His people, had been terrible shepherds. They had fed themselves instead of feeding the sheep. Now imagine a shepherd who has a green and luscious pasture full of grass for the sheep he hasn't been entrusted to care for. But instead of taking those sheep to the field to graze and eat, he leaves them in a barren field with no food and sells the field for a nice profit so that he can be fat and prosper, despite what it does for the sheep. The sheep are, are obviously with no hope, right? They're just left to die. How had these shepherds fed themselves? How had they, they taken care of themselves, though, instead of the sheep? Well, according to verse 3, they had actually fed on the sheep. The shepherds took the fattened sheep, they ate them and clothed them themselves with the wool, and then they still didn't feed the sheep. The picture here is that these wicked kings, they exploited the people of Israel for their own personal gain. They had put their own interests above those of the people. They used their power and their position, which again, God had provided them for the purpose of leading His people. They used them to take advantage of His people. According to Charles Feinberg, the forms of the verbs here in verse 3 indicate that this was something that was continually, they were continually doing. It wasn't just a, a one-time event. It wasn't like they just one time took advantage of the sheep and, and it prospered because of the sheep. No, this was a repeated, constant thing in which the kings of Israel had done and were doing to the people of Israel. So king after king, and with each king, they repeatedly exploited their subjects. So instead of feeding or giving their people what they needed, they starved them repeatedly. They fed on them. This starving wasn't always a literal starving of food, though. In fact, we've seen quite often while we've gone through prophets that the people of Israel had long periods, even during wickedness at times, where they had wealth and they had excess. Nothing as they had during the reigns of David and Solomon, but there were times, especially when God would send or is, there were times where they had wealth and they had uh, material things. Now, there were times when God would send precursory warnings and judgments that the people would suffer famine and they would literally be without food, again, because of the leadership of the kings. But quite often, that was not the case there in Israel. No, this starving that's referenced here is a, is a spiritual famine. They had no spiritual guidance or leadership. Not only did they fail to feed their flock, though, these kings, according to verse 4, they failed to strengthen the weak. They failed to heal the sick, bind up the injured, bring back the ones who were straying, or go find the ones who were lost. Look, all of those things that, that Ezekiel mentions here that these shepherds failed to do, those were all basic primary responsibilities of a shepherd. They were things that a shepherd was expected to do. These weren't tasks which were above and beyond the call of a shepherd. Obviously, a shepherd who failed to do these things, 
they wouldn't have much of a fog, would they? I mean, if you're not taking, you're not feeding them, you're not binding up their, their uh, wounds, you're not going after the lost, you're not seeking those who are wandering, there's not much of a flock left at some point. The flock would be poor, malnourished, broken, lost. A pitiful looking flock, really. And that's exactly what Israel had become. So these shepherds are described as selfish and lazy, but notice here at the end of verse 4, they were also cruel and harsh. They beat and put to death prophets of God. They put to death innocent men to acquire their land and wealth, as was the case with Ahaz and his subject Naboth. Maybe worst of all, though, they led the people of Israel into idolatry and ultimately into sacrificing their own children to idol worship. We got clear pictures of this in the book of Jeremiah when we went through it, but the children there in Israel who were sacrificed to these idols, they were taken to the valley of Hinnom to be sacrificed, and they would, they would beat drums outside of the city in order to drown out the cries and the screams of the children being put to death and offered to these sacrifices. These were pure, evil, wicked shepherds. The kings of Israel and Judah as a vast general rule, that, that was the description of them. There's no doubt that when a flock has poor shepherds, they suffer. And Ezekiel begins to describe how this flock suffered because of these poor shepherds. According to verses 5 and 6, they were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and, and on every high hill. They were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search, none to seek them. And here we can see the correlation to what is said and what actually happened to the people of Israel, can't we? I mean, poor shepherds allowed the people to leave the green pastures that God had provided them there in the land of Canaan and there under the, the, uh, the Word that He had given them, the, the true Word of God that He had given them to direct them and give them spiritual bounty. They had wandered, they had fled, or they had gone away, and the mountains and the high hills here that we see were... Examples of the, the temples and the idols of their false gods. In fact, even when these good kings of Judah who attempted to rid Israel of idols and turn them back to God, when they were sitting on the throne, all but King Josiah, again aside from King David and uh, King Solomon for some of his life, but after we, we had the breaking up of the, two, uh, of the, the kingdom into the north, north and south, only King Josiah is said to have taken the idols and stamped out all the idolatry in the high places. The rest of the good kings, the godly kings, they, were, they allowed idolatry to remain in the high places. If you want to turn with me to 2 Chronicles, we'll see an example of that. 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Beginning in verse 1, says, Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his king, reigned, or his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places, and broke down the pillars, and cut down the ashram, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandments. Now skip over to chapter 15. We read in verse 1, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. 
For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought Him, He was found by them. In those times there was no peace to Him who went out or to Him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin... And those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them for great numbers had deserted to him from Israel. And when they saw that the Lord his God was with him, they were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day. From the spool they had brought seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, with horns, and all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought Him with their whole desire, and He was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. Even Makkah, the father, the mother, king, uh, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook of Kidron. But, all of that's been great to this point, right? But, the high places were not taken out of Israel. Another, one example of, of all of these kings, again, aside from uh, Josiah, where they did many great things to take away idolatry and turn the people of Judah back to God, yet they still didn't fully go as far as they needed to go. There still was some idolatry left in Judah. Ultimately, because these poor shepherds leadership uh, these poor shepherds' leadership in Israel, Israel continued to wander and to stray to the point where God judged them right and scattered them from the promised land. The reference to the sheep as food here that we see in verse 5, food for all the wild beasts, is likely a reference to them being defeated and taken captive by the Assyrians and by Babylon. That's, that's what they were left to do. That's what they were left for after the poor leadership of Israel, or of the, the kings of Israel. Now before we move on, I know this, this chapter is condemning the leadership of Israel, and that's where our primary focus should be. But let's not look past the culpability of the people either, okay? I don't want to skip past that. God's judgment on them wasn't unjust. It wasn't haphazard. It came on all of the people in Israel, not just the shepherds, right? Not just the kings. All the people of Israel were judged. And God, again, didn't do that haphazardly or unjustly. He didn't unfairly judge them despite all the sin resting on the kings of Israel. First, the people of Israel, they had been warned many years before by the prophet Samuel of the dangers of asking for a king like all the other nations. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, prior to crowning Saul as king, Samuel prophesied this to the people. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. 
And He will appoint for Himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow His ground, and to reap His harvest, and to make His implements of war and the equipment of His chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cookers and bakers. He will take the best of your best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to His servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to His officers and to His servants. He will take your male servant and your female servant and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to His work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be His slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. They were warned of what would happen if they sought after a king like all the other nations. This warning, though, to the people did not set. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And that's exactly what they got with Saul and with most of the kings following David and Saul. Excuse me, David and Solomon. It is amazing how arrogant we are to think that we know better than God, right? That's exactly what they did. I mean, they, they, they heard the word of the Lord and they turned around and said, No, we know what we want. We know what is best for us. This is what we're going to have despite the wisdom of God and His warnings. We can be no different. We can learn examples from them, right? Not only that, passage after passage in the prophets, including many in Ezekiel, address... The people in their sin, right? Look, the people of Israel loved their sin. They loved the false prophets because they gave them messages that tickled their ears that they wanted to hear. The more they were more than willing to follow these wicked kings because they themselves were wicked as well and they had no desire to follow God and His Word. The people of Israel willingly wandered into sin despite having these poor shepherds. And like stubborn sheep, they persisted in their desire to wander astray. But again, sheep who have no shepherd or no good shepherd, they will stray. They will wonder. It is in their nature. With no king willing to go after them once they strayed, the sheep were left with no hope of returning. By the time God's judgment came on the northern kingdom, no king was left in Israel to go after those taken into captivity in Assyria. The same held true for the people of Judah. As Ezekiel was writing this, once they were taken into that final third wave of captivity there by Babylon, there was no king left to come after them or seek them. We'll go back to that here in a moment. Now, I want you to notice there in verse 5, the end of verse 5, the end of verse 6, there's a very important note for us to recognize. Ezekiel writes, My sheep. In speaking of the people of Israel pictured here in the sheep. He says that twice in reference to God. God is the my, and He calls them my sheep. As Psalm 103 was to remind the people in their worship, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Israel, they were the sheep of God, right? They were God's sheep. As we've gone through these first few verses where God addresses these bad shepherds, it's probably easy or common for us to view these sheep as the property of these shepherds, right? These kings. Here in America, where there aren't many shepherds or large flocks of sheep, at least not around here. I'm sure there are in certain parts of America, but 
none that I'm aware of or I, I see on a daily basis. We just assume often that a shepherd owns the sheep he cares for, right? But in the Middle East, that was often not the case. In the Middle East, it's very common for a man who owned a large flock of sheep to hire a, a shepherd or under-shepherd to tend the flock. Even if a man did not own a large flock, most families in the Middle East, even the peasants and the poorer families, had maybe up to as many as 15 sheep that they had as part of their family and that they would, had to care for. Most of them would be people who were peasants living in a village, typically anywhere in Israel. And as I said, one who was doing very well, even in that village, might have up to 15 sheep, but normally no more than that. And what would happen in these villages where these small flocks would be is that they would consolidate their sheep into one really big flock and they would have some shepherds who they would hire to take care of the sheep. They didn't like to hire a shepherd from outside of the village or outside of the extended family because as Jesus pointed out in John chapter 10, hirelings, they tend to destroy. Hirelings tend to kill. They tend to steal. They didn't want strangers doing that, so they would pick somebody from within the village, even more often within the family, somebody from the lowest level oftentimes of their, their social structure in that village, and they would hire them to shepherd the sheep. Now, there weren't a lot of rules about shepherding, but there were a few. You didn't mistreat them. You protected them from danger. You did all you could do to make sure that they returned to their owners healthy and intact. Probably the most important rule, though, is that you didn't lose a sheep. That was a big one. And if one went away or was lost, you, you would find it. You would go and seek it and bring it back alive or dead or bring back a, a piece of that snatched out of a predator's mouth if you had to to show that, that you sought the sheep. But you didn't come back without that sheep. The one you lost may have belonged to a family who only had two, and now they have one. And so you, you took your responsibilities seriously as a shepherd. When you lost one in the open pasture, you, you immediately went to seek them. You didn't leave and come back the next day. You didn't go out and do what you wanted to do and then maybe go look for them later. The shepherd must seek the sheep. They must have sought the sheep. That was his duty. That was his responsibility. To bring it back alive, to bring it back dead, or bring back a piece of it to show that he, he tried. Because no matter what, the sheep were not the property of that under-shepherd, right? They were not their sheep. And a shepherd who failed to adequately care for a, the sheep would face severe consequences when they returned. So here, God reminds them that these sheep whom they were tasked to care for were His sheep. God had placed them in charge and had directed them to care for His sheep. So what would be the penalty for a shepherd who treated another man's sheep like this? Well, verses 7-10 tells us of the penalty and warn these shepherds of the penalty. Ultimately, God tells them here they would be removed. He says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, so with 100% certainty, because Yahweh lives and cannot die, because His sheep had become prey and food for wild beasts, because they had no shepherd to care for them properly, and because those wicked shepherds had not tried to seek the lost sheep of God, but instead had fattened themselves and cared only for themselves, God says, I am against the shepherds. That's the last place you want to be is against Almighty Creator God. 
According to verse 10, God promises that He would require the sheep, His sheep, at their hand. Meaning He would hold them directly accountable and directly responsible for what had happened to His sheep. They would not escape responsibility for their actions and how their terrible leadership led God's people into idolatry, into, into, into judgment. Therefore, these shepherds would no longer feed the sheep. They would no longer be entrusted by God to care for and lead the people of Israel. And therefore, they would no longer be able to feed on them either. This was true after King Zedekiah, the last king there in Judah. After he was put to death by King Nebuchadnezzar when Jerusalem fell, there were no more kings from the line of David to sit on the throne. Turn with me quickly to chapter 22 of Jeremiah. Chapter 22, Jeremiah addresses all of the kings who came after Josiah, all of the kings who reigned after godly King Josiah. And he compares their wicked leadership to the leadership of Josiah, King Josiah and his godly leadership. Ultimately, he is comparing their leadership to the future ultimate king in Jesus, the only real good sinless king, but he, he is comparing these two and or these his sons and these grandsons to Josiah. And there at the very end in verse 30 he says, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. Speaking of Coniah, as you see back in verse 28, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Coniah in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30, in reference there in verse 28, he was the grandson of Josiah, King Josiah. He was also the nephew of King Zedekiah. Coniah only reigned for about three months there, and he was actually replaced by King Zedekiah. Again, Zedekiah was the last man of David's lineage to rule in Judah, but Coniah actually lived longer than Zedekiah. He was taken into captivity there in Babylon and lived longer than Zedekiah. But God promised there in Jeremiah that there would be no son of Coniah, none from his lineage from the line of David to sit on the throne again. History has proven Jeremiah's prophecy to be true as Coniah had no children alive after his death to, who would sit on the throne. And there was no throne there in Israel for them to rule on to begin with. Even after the people of Israel were allowed to return to rebuild the temple after 70 years of captivity, still no king sat on the throne. And the same holds true today. There has been no king of David, David's lineage, sit on the throne after Zedekiah and none from the line of Coniah. So where is the hope of restoration that I promised when this sermon started? Well, beginning here at the end of verse 2 and going through the remainder of this chapter, we will begin to see that hope. Hope in the Good Shepherd Himself. God says, I am against these shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding. No longer shall the shepherd feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. God Himself will rescue. God Himself will be that good shepherd. These shepherds would no longer feed on themselves, feed themselves on the fat of the flock. Instead, God says that He would rescue His sheep out of the mouth of of these shepherds. And we can see here the picture of a wild beast attacking a flock, attacking a flock of, of, of sheep and this faithful shepherd going to this beast and, and, and literally as the beast is putting the, she, the sheep in his mouth and about to rip him to pieces, the shepherd comes and, and tears the beast apart 
taking that shepherd that, or that, that sheep, taking that precious sheep out of the mouth of the, the beast and, and carrying it away. Except it's not a wild beast here that this is a reference to, but instead these wicked shepherds, right? These wicked kings who have been feeding on God's sheep. God state this, states though that this will no longer happen. He will put a stop to it and He will rescue His sheep. Now, how did this apply to the days, to the people of Ezekiel and to Ezekiel? Well, the scattering had already taken place, right? I mean, the leaders had already been taken down from leadership, as I just mentioned. But it, it applied for them as a continuing promise to not allow a wicked shepherd from the line of David to sit on the throne again, right? That would not happen. We, we covered that. He, that. That promise would remain, and that was a promise to the people there in, in Judah or in Babylon that, that, that he, God would not allow that to happen again. But also, Ezekiel and his generation, it was surely a, a hope that was given to them. Given to the faithful remnant that remained there. Despite the wickedness and the evil of the people of Israel, God still cared for them and would continue to care for them. He still would love them. He would still restore them and guide them. All was not lost, despite how desperate the situation looked. So having gone through a pretty straightforward passage and looked at how it would have applied to the people of Ezekiel's day and how they would have needed to hear this and what they would have heard, how, how do we apply that to us today? How do we have application? Well, first, we don't live in a theocracy here in America, right? I mean, we don't have a king uh, and sitting on the throne. We don't have a, a religious theocracy that we, we sit under. But leaders matter, right? Political or religious leaders, they matter. I've often heard the statement when voting for a president or a congressman or some other political office, you tell me if you've heard this as well, well, I'm not voting for a pastor. Meaning, I don't have to have the same standard for a political leader that I have for a pastor. And there is some truth to that, but not nearly in the way that many people who say it mean it. Usually it's said just to make an excuse for a man or a woman who's as wicked as the other options, but he's with the right political party and so they want to vote for him. Look, I'm not up here telling you who to vote for and I'm keenly aware that the options available to us in 2003 in America are bad and worse. Those are the options. But I am telling you that leaders matter. And if you're willing to overlook a man or woman's obvious wickedness because they say the right thing while they're running or because they stand the best chance to beat the party you don't like. And that's it. And that's the only reason. Because their lives are wicked and that's what they represent in their lives. Don't be surprised when that man or woman turns out to be just as wicked of a president or a congressman as the person who they were trying to beat out and who you were voting against in that election. But probably more applicable to our text, Christians in the church age still have shepherds, right? Our English word for pastor comes from the Latin meaning shepherd. There are good shepherds alive today, faithfully leading their flocks, but there are also bad shepherds today. I'm afraid probably more bad shepherds today than good shepherds. Men and women who care nothing for a flock in front of them. They could easily be described just as the wicked shepherds here in Ezekiel. They exploit the people who follow them, demanding money for promises of wealth or health or even heaven sometimes. 
They shepherd harshly and they garner obedience by threats and of excommunication if their every command is not followed, whether their command is biblical or not. These people prey on their congregation to remain in power and, and have their sense of worth, really. But these congregations, they keep these shepherds still, don't they? They still follow them. They sit and listen every Sunday and come back to hear from these shepherds. Sometimes they do that out of fear. More often they do it out of biblical ignorance. But most often they do this because these men and women tell them what they want to hear. They tickle ears, and people love to have their ears tickled. Even if there is a poor or there are poor shepherds, the flock, they are not going to be held blameless if they followed the poor shepherds and wandered off into error. A church must be sure that their pastors are faithful and biblical, good under-shepherds. That is a responsibility of the people in the church. But the responsibility of the shepherd obviously starts with the shepherd, right? Pastors have the first and primary responsibility to be what God has called us to be. To be good under-shepherds, awaiting the return of our good shepherd. We are given a directive and a reward for faithful shepherds in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through There, Peter tells the elders, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That is a heavy responsibility, but it is a responsibility nonetheless which each pastor is called to bear and which each church should hold their pastor and pastors to. I don't want to push the application too far to people that it doesn't apply to, but I think it's right to remind all of you, Sunday school teachers and even parents, that God has put you in a place where you are to lead and guide spiritually in some capacity. For you teachers, be diligent in your study and preparation each week that you are to teach. No, you're not pastors or shepherds of the church, but if you are teaching others, then you are trusting or they are trusting you to prepare and handle God's Word faithfully. For you parents, the job of spiritually leading the children God has given to you is of paramount importance. Do not neglect it. Do not depend solely on the church to provide it either. There's only so much that can be taught in three sermons a week in one hour of Sunday school. A second application here, Jeremiah spoke a similar judgment and prophecy to our chapter in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1-8. through There in chapter 23, verses 1-8, through we read, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to your or I will tend you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply 
I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall, be, shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called the Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought us up from the people of or up brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. There's a stark contrast between the wicked shepherds, right? The good shepherd is a stark contrast from these wicked shepherds. In John 10, Jesus refers to Himself as the Good Shepherd. Right? He says, The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. I know My own, and My own know Me. That is the Good Shepherd. That is what the shepherd, the Good Shepherd does for His sheep. So there's hope despite wicked leadership. There was hope for Israel. There is hope for us today. Lastly, we see God's love and compassion for His people in this passage despite their wickedness, right? Despite having just been judged by God, He offers a word of comfort and a promise to be their good and caring shepherd. He, he promises that right after they've been taken into captivity in Babylon for their wickedness. Now this scattering that, that took place, it still remains of God's people today. Israel has not been restored fully, but they will be. And they will finally have a good and faithful shepherd king sit on David's throne to lead them forever. I mentioned earlier that the line of David through Kaniah might never sit on the throne again, but that line ran through David's son Solomon. Jesus' line through Mary, His bloodline, it went through David's son Nathan. So God's promise to David still remains intact. That prophecy and that promise to have a son reign forever is still going to come true. We will learn more about this good shepherd, this good king shepherd next week and in the following week after that. Stand with me.